We're going to catch up and start up in Psalm 18. And I don't know how many of you knew these songs or were paying attention, but just about every worship song that we sang tonight comes from Psalm 18. Uh, if you, I don't know, well, you guys saw them up on the screen, but uh, so much about the Lord being our strength, being our rock. And we know that Jesus is the rock. And uh, he's who we put our foundation on. But I'm going to go ahead and read through Psalm 18. And uh, then we'll come back and do a few word studies and see what the Lord has for us and application-wise. It says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, in whom I will trust, and my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And so shall I be safe from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. And in my distress I called upon the Lord, and cried out to my God. And he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken, and because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth, and coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens, he bowed the heavens also, and came down. With darkness under his feet, he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind, and he made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire, he sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. And he sent from above, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me, and they confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. In his sight. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you'll show yourself blameless. With the pure, you'll show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down the haughty looks. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. And as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength, and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He sets me on the high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze you have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me, so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise, have fallen under my feet. And for you have armed me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. 
They cried out, but there was none to save, even the Lord, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind, and I cast them out like dirt in the streets. And you have delivered me from the strivings of the people, and you've made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. And the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man, and therefore I give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. I'll sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. It's a long one, 50 verses. Um, well, to those who trust God, he is their strength. Um, starting with the context is kind of kind of given to us. If you go back to verse 1, you'll actually see part of verse 1 is the introduction to the book. And it talks about uh, Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, in the hand of Saul, and he said, I will love thee. Um, the context really is, if just leading up to it, Israel came out of the land of Egypt, crossed through the desert, came across the Jordan, Joshua led him into the land, and uh, then they were ruled by judges. They didn't have a king. And that really is what the Lord intended. The Lord was going to be their king. And that's what he called them out to himself. And all the nations around, had, you know, he would deliver uh, these nations into the Israelites' hands. And um, the book of Judges is basically a count of, of Israel after God had brought him into the land. And uh, then they would sin. And they'd worship the gods surrounding of, of the gods of the surrounding nations. And God would send marauders or, or uh, different uh, uh, nations in and to attack them and to, to plunder. And they would cry out to God again, and he would raise them up. He'd send uh, deliverers like Gideon or like Samson and others, and eventually Samuel. Um, up and down, though, like this. They would repent. They would be saved. They would start you know, messing around again. And then the Lord would send these marauders again. And so... The people finally get to the point where they said, you know, you know, we'd rather serve a, a king than serve God. We, we just can't deal with this. And so um, they would rather just have a king like all the nations around them. And so God commanded the prophet Samuel to anoint the king for them. And, and that's not what God intended for him, obviously, but um, he gave in to their wish for a king. And so they refused a king, and Samuel anointed Saul to be, or they refused the Lord as their king, and they, Samuel anointed Saul to be king of Israel. But Saul also failed to obey the, the, the Lord and uh, what he'd commanded him regarding the Amalekites. The Amalekites used to follow the Israelites around in the desert and um, attack them from behind, and they attacked the weak and the elderly that were kind of straggling behind, and the Lord wanted the Amalekites to be utterly destroyed, commanded Saul to do so. Saul went out, but he spared the king Agag, and he spared a bunch of the plunk for himself and brought him back. And so he failed to obey God and, and did not utterly destroy the Amalekites. And so God commanded Samuel to anoint the young boy David, Jesse, son of Jesse, uh, to replace Saul. Now David would go around and he would see the Lord's hand in his life, even from his youth as a shepherd boy, saving him from bears and from lions as he was tending the sheep. And saving the sheep, he would he would give them to uh, um, uh, he would protect the sheep from bears and lions, and the Lord was with him, and David knew it, and David had seen the hand of the Lord being more powerful than David could possibly have be to overcome a bear, overcome a lion, and um, so he became uh, you know he would go ahead and fight Goliath, and. Uh, Saul would send David to continue to fight the Philistines. Well, David became more popular, if you will, or more victorious and famous, really, is the word. Not popular so much, but then Saul. But Saul became angry and jealous and began to persecute David himself. 
And so this kind of leads up to where we're at. Uh, God continued to give David victory over his enemies and even delivered Saul into his hands twice. But David feared God and honored Saul, the anointed king of Israel. And so he did not harm Saul. Well, Saul was stricken in battle, lethally, mortally wounded, and um, fell on his sword. Uh, And so David became king and um, went on to fight the Philistines, Moabites, Syrians, Ammonites, Edomites, all the others. And David's enemies, what he talks about here, are the God's enemies. They're Israel's enemies. David was a man of war for the God of Israel. And this song was real. This wasn't just a sit around a campfire kind of thing, telling the stories of some, some uh, you know, speculation or something like that. These were real, real things that happened to David. And so we read this uh, lengthy psalm. It's actually taken from 2 Samuel 22. You don't need to turn there. But one distinctive difference is it doesn't have verse 1 in 2 Samuel. It simply begins with um, the Lord is my rock. It doesn't have the part of verse 1 that says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. I wonder if you know he would sing this song when he was victorious. But when it came time to put it in the book of Psalms, he was thinking back and he realized how much the Lord had saved him and the strength that the Lord had given him. And it just uh, to the point where he could only say, I will love you, O Lord, you're my strength. And so it starts with, uh, I will. It's a, it's a decision. It's an act that he's loving the Lord. The word love is um, to love deeply with mercy, compassion, and tender affection. In a sense that, you know, he's giving himself over to like he would anyone who he can trust and who he knows. And there can be that, uh, that uh, tender affection, that compassion, that mercy. Not that David needs to have mercy on God. That's not, it's just that type of love and, um, where he gives himself over to it. And it's a decision to love the Lord. And the word um, Lord there is Jehovah. It simply means the one true God. And the word strength there has to do with help when it's an impossible situation. And you see that kind of as he, as he goes through here, talking about these enemies that are stronger than he is, too strong for him. And so David has this love for the Lord. And the first thing that comes to my mind trying to make an application already is how do we find ourselves so deeply in love with the Lord for the mercy, um, the tender affection, the compassion, and to have... We're commanded to love the Lord, but it's because he loved us first, right? And the, the only thing I could think of was, or one of the things that came to mind was, was um, Luke 7, if you want to turn there, when Jesus taught about love. And we're going to look at verses 36 through 50. And it's got quite a contrast to it for those who love and those who got a question about it. So he was uh, with the Pharisees. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him in verse 36. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. Well, behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is that's touching him, for she's a sinner. Well, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he said, See, teacher, say it. Well, there is a certain rich creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owned or owed 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay him, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. 
And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And um, those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Notice the contrast, forgiven little, loves little. How many of you have been forgiven a little? Um, well, none. Because all sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And it took Jesus, who is without sin, to pay the price for our sin. We're the ones that see our own sins as not quite as bad as somebody else. And, and it's, uh, you know, we sometimes maybe think they might maybe needed the forgiveness just a little bit more than, than we did. I don't know. But... Um, Some, I guess, think they sin a little. Now, Jesus didn't, you know, it's it's actually the the self-righteous and religious ones who are quick to point out someone else's sin. And Jesus didn't deny that she was a sinner and even agreed that her sins were many. But in the light of his forgiveness, well, that's the depth of her love and our love for him. So whose sins are not many? Well, none. Whose love for God is only a little? Well, those guys that kind of think that they don't see that. You know, they they see, them, see themselves as not really needing that much forgiveness compared to the next guy. And so it's a, it's a truth fact that some are forgiven little, but it's not because they don't need to be forgiven much. It's because they see it in their own eyes as such. You know, those who sin are not, uh, are not many. Um, those whose sins are not many. You know, they believe that they're more righteous than others. They put themselves in the position of judges over others. Those are the ones that have the prideful face, the haughty look, and what the Bible calls a haughty look in verse 27 back in Psalm 18. But David says, I will love thee, O Lord. That true and deep love that gives oneself over to that mercy makes yourself vulnerable to that love. Um, like someone who knows his own shameful sin, and yet they also know the mercy of God that matches that and uh, completely uh, takes that sin away. Mark 12 is a similar character, only this guy was close. If you want to go to Mark 12, in verses uh, 28 to 34, when it comes to love, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reason together, perceiving that he had answered them well. How did that read? I'm sorry. That he had uh, answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all. And this had been uh, part of a conversation going on, talking about the resurrection and and, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But uh, Jesus answered him, well, first of all, the commandment is, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And this is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the scribes said to him, Well, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And notice what Jesus says. When he saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. But after that, no one dared to ask him a question. Not far from the kingdom of heaven. Loving the Lord thy God. Romans 5, 1 through 11, if you want to go there, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because it was promised. 
Because we're justified by faith. We have Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith unto this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character uh, produces hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. And for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received that reconciliation. We put our faith in Jesus. We have peace. We have hope. And God has poured out his love in our hearts. Notice what he says. He says, we were without strength. It kind of sounds like David, doesn't it? When he was talking about there were the enemies stronger than he is. Too much for him. And we, though, it says, notice this, were enemies of God before when we were with the ungodly. And um, we'll get back to that. It's important to know that we have no strength in ourselves. Paul would say that uh, he glories in his weaknesses. He had illness and, and so forth and speech impediment. And um, he would glory in that because God gets the glory then. God gets the honor and the praise because it's not Paul. It's the Holy Spirit through Paul and through his word. It's, uh, you know, this way God gets the glory, praise, honor, and power. So back to verse 2 in Psalm 18. The Lord is my strength. And he goes on in verse 2 to uh, talk about seven ways that God is his strength. How did David see God's strength? Well, the first one is as a rock. And that word rock there is a crag or a, a cliff or a stronghold or a, mostly a lofty stronghold up high. And first mention of this actually was in Numbers 20, verses 8 through 1. Um, I'll just kind of par paraphrase. Moses had uh, taken the people through the desert. And back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, the people were thirsty and they were complaining. And the Lord brought it to the, or uh, Moses brought it to the Lord. And um, so the Lord says, I tell you what, take and your stick, the, the rod that you had parted the Red Sea with, and, and you go and you smite this rock. And he smote the rock and, and water came forth. Now the rock that's talked about there is not the same rock. It's actually a different word. It just means a, a stone, simple stone. But in Numbers 20, uh, verses 8 through 1, they, they came around again, and this is long after they had actually gone to the land and then basically um, were frightened and decided to uh, wander in the desert and, uh, for another 40 years. But uh, they came back to the same place. They were thirsty again. And uh, Moses uh, you know, came to the Lord, and the Lord said, Strike the rock. And Moses was angry, though. He was fed up with these people complaining how long do I have to deal with you, he says. So he smacks the rock twice in anger. That rock is a different word. It means that stronghold. The other one, the first time he hit the rock, it was just a plain old rock. This is different. And that's the first mention in the Bible of this particular kind of rock. Now Paul talks about this in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. And he calls this a spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ, he says, and it went with them throughout the desert. And when they, when they wandered in the wilderness, the Lord was with them, and Christ was with them. Um, so the, the 
I guess there's a lot there that's such a big, uh, big Bible study in and of itself, you know, talking about that. But the, the bottom line is Moses misrepresented the Lord to the people. He showed anger, frustration, and, and uh, you know, uh, the Lord wasn't angry. The Lord wasn't frustrated. He wanted to give them the water. Not to mention, if that rock was Christ, you don't strike the rock twice because Jesus died once for all. You don't come back every week and do another uh, ceremony. You know, certainly we remember what was done. That's why we take communion, just as a as a, a remembrance. But we don't crucify the Lord twice. In fact, uh, when you attempt to do that, it's blasphemy. Um, number two, he he calls the Lord his fortress. And actually, the word fortress is interesting. There also means stronghold but it has to do with the idea of being a net, being a prey, catching a prey in a net. And uh, that uh, kind of comes back when he starts talking about a snare later on. The third thing he says is the Lord is, in verse 2, is, is a deliverer. The word there is to escape, to save, to slip away. And often used in Psalms uh, by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, concerning God's heart towards the poor. Delivered, often used uh, Psalm 40, um, Psalm 70. But this is also a prophecy. If you want to turn with me to Romans 11, and we're just going to look at two verses, 26 and 27. Because in fact, you know, Jesus said, the volume of the book speaks of me. And David was a prophet as well as a psalmist and king. And uh, much of the Psalms are prophetic concerning the Messiah concerning God's anointed. Romans 11, 26, 27. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer, same word, will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for, his, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So where is the deliverer from? Well, he's from Zion. And he says, in the next part of the verse, he says, my God, in Psalm 18, um, it says El, simply the word El for God, the one true God. Now, we're going to keep plowing through here. The fourth one is strength, and that word is also used for the word rock, and that's kind of that simple one, uh, strength in whom I trust, and that is that more of the uh, simple rock. But it means to, de- to trust and depend on. Isaiah 26, 20, or, uh, verse 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. And the fifth one is the shield, the buckler, first used by God about himself when he came to Abraham in Genesis 15. As his shield, as ex- he calls him himself in, in Genesis, as Abraham's shield and his exceeding great reward, ample and numerous in worth and value and wages. And he says, don't fear. And David knows, as his shield, God is his shield and he trusts him. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure and he is a shield to those who put their trust in him. And uh, the next one in in, uh, verse 2 is the horn of salvation, a ram's horn or the horns of the corner of the altar where they put the, the blood, put the th- blood on their thumbs and they uh, um, purified the, the horns on the altar. Also the horn uh, sound of proclamation. Also the horn of anointing, uh, horn of oil for anointing. Again, prophecy concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Psalm um, one thirty-two seventeen, I'll just quick read it. Uh, it says... Um, There I will make the horn of David grow, and I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. In Psalm 148.14, it says, uh, And he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. And again, prophecy concerning our Lord. Um, Luke 1 
the story, if you'd like to go there, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. This is the story of Zacharias, who was John the Baptist's father. And um, just want to pick it up in verse 57. Uh, you remember Elizabeth and Mary were cousins, and when uh, they met up, John leapt in Elizabeth's womb because the presence of the Lord. Um, but in verse uh, 57, now Elizabeth's full time came to her for, to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Now, it's funny because Zacharias didn't believe, and so he was actually uh, mute. Um, we read in the account. And then uh, when finally uh, John was born, his, his tongue was loosed. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise a child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives by this name. So they made signs to his father that he would call him, because they were using sign language he couldn't speak. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, praising God. And their fear, then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these things were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judah. And all those heard, who heard kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, directly from what David's talking about in Psalm 18. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Oh, just exactly what David's talking about in Psalm 18. And, you know, the seventh uh, thing that David uses to describe the Lord's strength is this word stronghold. And it means a high tower, a refuge, and a secure height. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. And, you know, this is for David. Uh, You know, it's for, for his view of the battles that he would go into. And he would recognize this as the advantages he would have and the perspective that David would have in battle against his lethal enemies. Again, this is real battle. This is real war. This song had real realness to it. Um, in Israel and in that land at the time, in those days, cities were built on a hill. If you've ever been there, uh, you know, nowadays it's all modern. You build cities in a, in a river valley, so you got the water supply and so forth like we do here. But in Israel, the cities were always built up on a hill. That was the strength. Then you put the walls around it, and you can see who's coming and people who are coming up the hill. You know, if any of you ever been to Israel, one example might be Masada, one of the fortresses and stronghold of of King Herod, built right up on the top of an area. It was, you know, impenetrable. And eventually the Romans, after a, a lengthy time of doing it, built up a rampart and just completely using slave uh, labor built this entire ramp up to it to where they finally got up to where they could take him out. And um, that's another story. But David, um, after seeing all of this and knowing that the Lord was on his side, knowing that the Lord was his stronghold, his high tower, the first thing David does is in this situation is he calls on the Lord with praise and thanksgiving in verse 3. And he also says, so I'll be saved from my enemies. And we're going to talk about the enemies in a little bit. Um, Verses 4 and 5, this is David's situation. He's facing death. It says the pangs of death, and that word is rope or cord, pangs of travail unto death. He's tied to it. It's, It's not, he cannot get out of it. The floods of ungodliness, that word ungodliness really has to do with worthless, useless, and wicked. In other words, there's, just, there's no help and there's floods of it all around. This has the idea of being a distraction and, and it says they're confronting 
confrontation and frustrating ungodliness, tempting him to fear. And, you know, to the point where he's literally afraid, it says in verse 3, uh, or in verse 4, you know, this, the floods of ungodliness made him afraid. Uh, sorrows of Sheol is hell and the grave, a place of no return, and the snares of death. And that word snare really means bait. And so here he is, all this is surrounding him, flooding him, trying to snare David while he's fighting his enemies. And the reality of these floods of wickedness are in our world today, trying to lure us and, and trick us as we walk with the Lord and seek to spread the gospel. Uh, many believers face strong persecution and death for their testimony of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, there's, there are organizations that keep track of how Christians are persecuted, if you're familiar. You can look them up. Um, now the one escapes my mind. Uh, um, but um, it's going on to this day. Uh, when many of the Christians were fleeing Syria uh, a couple of years back, the stories were terrible. And the things that were happening to these, and it was women and children, and all, and, and for the testimony that they're Christians. And in India, um, the Hindus and the Muslims persecute the Christians uh, without end. And um, so there is persecution, and we feel it, and it's probably going to get a little worse for us. I think it would be nice that we would have persecution for his namesake rather than whether or not we do something medically that they want us to do. You know, certainly that's a part of, you know, that separating people out, and it's a part of the politics, if you will, in, in our country and in the world. But the truth of it is, you know, um, you know, being thrown in a concentration camp for not getting a shot is not the same as having your life threatened because you're a believer and you're spreading the gospel. Um, so, anyway, the, the worthless and useless is flooding around us. And it's such a distraction. How do we not know what he's talking about there in the days we're living in? It's just everywhere. You can't look at anything uh, on the television without it being that ungodliness. And it's useless. So what does David do? And what should we do? Verse 6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. And he heard my voice from his temple. And at this time... There was no temple. The, there was a tabernacle. And, um, but he, the Lord's temple that David's talking about is far above the starry heaven that we're thinking of. It's, it's far above. Um, we'll get that a little bit later. But, um, so in great distress, David cries out to, to God and his throne above. You know, don't listen to the enemy or those that might be discouraging you, um, saying that you can't call on God because you feel unworthy or maybe you got yourself in a situation, which we all do, and we're just not feeling really confident, maybe a little timid to come before the Lord. Don't, that's, that's when you need to most, you know, to especially need to call on him and cry out. Why? Well, because he, he hears us. And his, his cries come to his ears, and they come before his throne. And um, it seems like it's the most difficult when, when we feel like we are ashamed, but that's when we do what? We know that he paid the price, and we can put away that shame. All we have to do is call on him. And um, you can always call on the Lord, especially when surrounded by all this ungodliness and those things that are trying to bait us and lure us in. Um, he's Almighty God. He knows everything. There's no reason for you to be feel timid. You have a righteousness in our Lord Jesus Christ that uh, allows us to come boldly before the throne of grace, no matter what situation you find yourself or you got yourself into. And that's what David did. What's God's response? Now, verses seven through fifteen is quite the quite the thing here. Um, I don't know how much of this David would have seen in his lifetime. I mean, when you think of all these things that he goes through, I won't read through it again. But the gist of it is, what's his response is, you know, uh, the earth shakes, the foundations. But the reason is because he's angry. What makes God angry? It says the enemies of Israel 
putting in David in peril. Well, that's what he's angry at. What about now? What makes God angry now? According to Psalm 2, it's still when the enemies of Israel and his anointed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that will judge the nations in Zion when these enemies come and treat Israel to this day. That's a true prophecy in Psalm 2 that lasts to this day. Is Israel saved? Are Jews saved without Jesus Christ? No. But the nation, the, the land, his prophecy, he's faithful. Why would he be faithful to me? And when I, when I blow it, if he's not going to be faithful to Israel to keep his word that he gave them the land. And uh, he would bring them back to the land in these last days, just like he said. But also those um, that deceive and misrepresent him like Moses did. You know, they misrepresent his, age, his nature to believers and to the world about his grace, his mercy, and his love through the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. People misrepresent the Lord. They all twist it a little bit. Well, Jesus really wasn't God. Well, you know, he had a brother who was Lucifer. And, well, it's a yin and a yang. There's the equal of white and black and, and light and dark. There's all kinds of ways that the world and the enemy um, has introduced false teaching that misrepresents who God is. And so that's God hates God is angry at those that would misrepresent him. In fact, what did he say if, about the little ones? If you, if you stumble one of these little ones, it's better if you're not born, or it's better if you had a millstone hung around your neck. You know, these things make God angry uh, when he gets misrepresented because he wants people to know him. He desires that people come to know him. And, uh, you know, so sending, um, well, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world. But at the end, Jesus also, there's the wrath of the Lamb. He will judge the earth. And the wrath of the Lamb will be on those that rejected him. So David's crying out to the Lord God Almighty. He knows is the maker of heaven and earth. And you see all these things. The earth quaked. uh, Fire, smoke went out of the Lord's nostrils. I don't know how and when David saw that. David saw a lot of things. And... uh, uh, when he was before him, the Lord revealed what he revealed. But he, he bowed the heavens and came down with darkness. Um, you know, he knows, David knows the stories. He sent, the Lord sent it, uh, plagues of darkness, hail and fire, thunder and lightning down upon Egypt because Pharaoh uh, would not let God's people go. All the while in Goshen, where the Israelites are, you know, it's untouched. He opened up the Red Sea. What does David say? He saw the foundation, or he saw the, the deep channels of the sea, of the waters. He opened up the Red Sea for Israel to cross and destroying the enemies that pursued. Um, just in the past few years, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there are divers who found um, the similar type of uh, chariot wheels and pieces of chariots down in the Red Sea along this little ridge that wouldn't have been as deep as the rest of the Red Sea that if the Lord opened it up, still plenty deep, that it was definitely the Lord, it was a miracle. It's not some marsh like some people try and explain away um, on a windy day so they could cross over. You're not going to drown a bunch, an entire Egyptian, you know, army in a little marsh. And, uh, but they found archaeological evidence of chariot wheels right along this ridge, right between the Red Sea, across the Red Sea, over to Egypt. You know, so he opened the Red Sea for Israel. And just, uh, um, God would have stood up the waters at the bottom. Mount Sinai shook and quaked when God came in a thick cloud to speak to Israel, to speak to Moses. So much so that Israel feared and begged that God doesn't talk to them anymore. Just talk to Moses. Moses can talk to us. And that's uh, what they did. And, um, where is this all from, according to David? It says God's breath, his nostrils. Um, in verse 15, the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your nostrils. Psalm 2, verse 5, when God responds to those nations that rage against him, 
These are the enemies of Israel. These are David's enemies. He talks about his wrath, his face against these nations. The word literally is nose. Kind of like what he's talking about here. By his breath, by his nostrils, and that anger of the Lord. Well, now what about our enemies? You and me. Do you got somebody in mind? Let's go down memory lane first and see who was the enemy of the Lord. In Romans 5, again, uh, back to Romans, uh, verse 10. We read it before, but it said, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So did we realize that? Um, that we were actually his enemies. If you want to go a couple more pages to the right, to, well, a few flips here, to Colossians. And chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, Paul talking about the preeminence of Christ and our reconciling to him through Christ. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. By him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless, above reproach in his sight. Remember David talked about being blameless? We'll talk to that a little bit too. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and were not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may not have thought yourself an enemy of God. You know, you're probably just trying to make a living, probably just trying to live the American dream or, you know, have some good times. But you were an enemy of God. You didn't realize it and until the light was shown, until someone told you, that sin does get judged, that God is holy. And it's not until people realize that they have sin that needs forgiveness that they're going to get saved. It's not going to be some understanding that, gee, I want to go to heaven, I guess Jesus is the only way. Well, that's true, but he paid the price. It's the fact that he paid for you. He, he's the one that uh, took your, your sin upon himself, and that's how it is that we are. And, you know, we were enemies before that. Now, we do also have three enemies that you have to talk about, and that's in 1 John. Just a couple more pages past Colossians. And um, these are the three things that we do have to keep our eye on. These are the three things that we do uh, deal with as enemies right now. In 1 John chapter 2, 15, through 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, number one, the lust of the flesh, number two, the lust of the eyes, and number three, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. These are the things we wrestle with. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. And, uh, you know, this was and is the problem among believers as well. James deals with this. And I'll just read James 4, uh, 1 through 10. You know, he was dealing with these uh, people that he was writing to was kind of a mixed multitude. There were some there that may or may not have even been saved uh, among the church in, in James uh, chapter 4, um, 1 through 10, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. I, don't, I can't imagine these being believers. But they're amongst the believers. They're entertaining them. They're allowing them to, to hang with them. You fight, you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses. In other words, you're supposed to be married to the Lord, but you're married to the world. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity. That's the same thing. Enmity with God, an enemy of God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. And therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now what's our part? What are we supposed to do about this? In verse 7, therefore submit to God. Well, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Remember David was talking about he's cleansed his hands. You sinners, you purify your hearts, you double-minded, mixed multitude. Lament and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom and humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's not that he's, he's trying to completely bum out all the believers that he's writing to. He's, he's writing to the Jews scattered abroad in the book of James. And, um, but those that are in love with the world, yeah, sober up. You know, if the world is still that, you can't make up your mind if you're serving the Lord 100% or if you're still kind of loving the things of this world. And what's he talking about? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, pride. These things that the world is happy to deal with all the time. And we got to live and work among these types and, and these people. And we were these people. And all. So this is our enemy also these days. Um, you know, you might have had somebody in mind a little earlier when I was talking about enemies. Well, we find out that we used to be the enemies, didn't we? You know, that's what I'm kind of getting at here. Um, Luke 6 is a is a good a good thing to look at here verses 27 through 36 how are we supposed to love our enemies you know how how are we supposed to look at our enemies and deal with them um it's you know we think of people who could be our enemies we think of our country and the things that we deal with as believers seeing our country fade as it is and you know, the Lord maybe still has uh, plans for us in other ways. I don't know. But it just seems like we're on the skids. And I leave it at that without going into all the details. You're, you're just as aware of all the things that are going on as I am. But our enemies, you know, these are individuals. We're not talking about some political slant or some, uh, you know, the Russians are coming or whatever. These are the enemies that the Lord's talking about, those that persecute, those that hate us. But I say to you, <clears throat> excuse me, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other side. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, will you do also to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, and what credit is to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from, from whom you hope to receive back, well, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend and receive back. But, you'll, but love your enemies, do good, lend hoping nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. And this brings us back to Psalm 18. Um, what about those who trust in God? I do have a, I was going to go through another passage, Matthew 13. And you can maybe jot it down. <clears throat> Ultimately, we well, you know, we have to go there. Matthew, Matthew 18, or 13. Speaking of enemies, we all should not be ignorant of the devices of our, the enemy of our soul. And um, ultimate enemy is that serpent of old, Lucifer and Satan. Matthew thirteen twenty five through 39. There's also the parable of the sower and all, and the one that sowed the seed that choked was the enemy. 
But in 24, another parable he put forth to them, the kingdom is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted, produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, you did not sow good seed in your field. How then does it have tares? Or did you not sow sow good seed in your field? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them both. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the end time of harvest, I'll say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, and then gather up the wheat into my barn. And so the enemy, again, Satan sows seed. Satan sows seed of discord even among believers. He's sowing those tares among the wheat. Well, what, hit, what is his end? Well, again, the wrath of the Lamb. And in Revelation 20, verse 10, he's cast into the lake of fire. God will deal with his enemies and with our enemies. Let God deal with them. For our sake, you know, bless them, pray for them. If, if nothing else, it heap, heaps coals on their head, which means basically they have been... Um, they don't know what to do with it when you love them, when they hate you, when they when you persecute them, or when they persecute you and you love them back and treat them um, well. They don't know what to do with that. So verses 16 through 19 in Psalm 18, he's delivered out of impossible circumstances from a strong enemy, stronger than he is. Not only that, it's an enemy that hates him. And, you know, when somebody hates you, they don't ignore you. They come after you. They don't just see you go down the street. If they hate you, well, it's going to be on their face. They don't want to see you. And when they do see you, they don't want to take you out. And that's the kind of enemy that David's dealing with in a real-life thing. You know, and like Jesus said, you know, hatred is murder um, in, in your heart. And they kick when you're down. They always got to get their jabs in. It says in, in uh, 16, you know... Uh, or was it um, in 18, they confronted me, they resisted, they, they frustrated him in the day of his calamity. So he's down, and they're kicking him when he's down. Um, they always got to get their jabs in when you can't defend yourself. But God delivers us, brings us out from all that. He supports us and delivers us. Why? Well, David goes on to say, because he delights in us. He rewards us for keeping our hands clean. You know, what's the difference between a saved sinner, like you or me, and an unsaved sinner? The difference is Jesus paid for our sins. Um, we don't walk in them anymore. You know, we may, uh, pay, we may, may fall or make a mistake, but, you know, we walk in the light of God's grace now. And, uh, you know, should we sin all the more so grace can really be grace? Well, no, Paul says, you know, we died to our old nature that enslaved us. We've been baptized, and that's a, a symbol of our death into Christ. We've been crucified and buried with him through baptism. And we can, so we can take part in the resurrection. You know, what's the difference between an a, a unsaved sinner and a saved sinner? Well, they're both sinners. Only one now has been redeemed. One has been cleansed. One is uh, now walking in the life that God gave us. Why would we want to add to and continue to walk in that? And like I said, does this mean we're perfect? No, but we need to desire to walk sincerely, like David talks about, upright in heart with moral integrity. Walk circumspectly. What does that mean? What's the final circle that's going to come around in the end of your actions? Think it through. By the time you're done with that action, what's it going to lead to? That's walking circumspectly, according to Paul. Um, like in verse 21, you don't chase after wickedness. Look at, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. What's the key? Verse 22, well, keep all his judgments before me, uh, before you. Uh, don't put away his statutes. In other words, get into the word. The importance of being God's word for our spiritual food is just like, we would starve without regular physical food. You know, he knows everything we do for him and in his name, even to the giving of a glass of water, he said. And we'll have that. He will repay us according to the good things we do, the cleanness of our hands, 
Again, we're not perfect, but we want to walk like that. Notice verse 37, that mercy that we forgive and we don't judge because there's mercy for the merciful, right? God says he saves the humble and brings down the haughty. And, uh, you know, and then he begins to go on. uh, You know, you're a, a light, my lamp. The Lord, my God, will enlighten my darkness. And 28, and that's the word, getting into the word. It's a lamp into my feet, into our feet. So important for us to be in the word and be fed. Um, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays and Saturday mornings, you know, if we don't get into it every day, the Lord said like manna in the desert. You can't pick up enough for tomorrow. You just got to pick up enough for today. And that doesn't mean you have to do a whole Bible study every single day, but get into the Word and get to know your Lord and seek Him, pray. Um, what is God's nature towards those who put their trust in Him? Verses 30 and 31. Well, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord is proven. He's a shield to all who trust in Him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? His way is perfect. There's no other, you know... There's no other foundation to build on. There's no other stronghold to rely on. There's no other high place above any impossible circumstance. And we face impossible circumstances. We need a God that's above that. Um, Verses 32 through 45 details how God strengthened David. This is David's firsthand experience. He can say, you know, we talked earlier about all the things he knew had happened in Egypt and that he'd and what the Lord had uh, shown his nature to be through the book of Genesis and on through. David knew all this. And uh, he knew God was able to to deliver him because he was the mighty God. But he also strengthens and equips us. In 32 to 45, you know, he gives him strength, makes his way perfect. His feet like a deer, sets him on high places, Again, the high areas that are easy to protect and you can see all your enemies and how to deal with them. Teaches his hands to make war. Same with us. He, he helps us. It says, you know, we may be tempted, but we're not going to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But he'll provide a way for us. He teaches us how to make war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze, giving him strength. David was able to sling some stones and take out a giant. David was fighting. He was going to war. He was, he was taking out the nations that the Lord had told him to take out. And as he did so, the Lord was with him, and he was able to do things, leap tall walls. But notice in verse 35, it says, You have also given me a shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. But look at this. Your gentleness has made me great. It's by his gentleness that he made David great. That word gentleness is meekness, humility, con descendants or condescension in other words god was meek and humbled and condescended himself to come to where david was david didn't achieve some way to find a ladder to get to god it's god who looks into the universe who humbles himself it says psalm 113 you can jot it down and look at it later god humbles himself to look into even to the edge of the universe we don't know where that is it's beyond us it's, it's uh, you know, they're, they're about to. Um, we can get into this when we get to Psalm 19 as well, but they're sending up another telescope. It'll be six, eight months before it's ready to go, but it's like the Hubble, only they figure it'll be about 15 times more uh, powerful. And so they're going to be able to see, you know, they, they take the Hubble and they point it to a little dark spot in the in the, the starry sky, thinking they'll find the end of the universe and see something that, like, I don't know, like some wall where it ends i don't know and they find a vast array of a whole mess of new universes and new galaxies and it's just they can't find the end they can't measure the span of god's hand that's how big the universe is well if they can find the edge they can say well we know god's only this big well they're never going to find the end same way they're looking for the smallest thing they got the hedron collider and they'll send the atom around and they'll split it off and they'll get the little boson thing and um, you know, this has been a few years ago, so I don't know where they're at these days, but they, they split one, and uh, all of a sudden, there's two little things coming off the boson. What are those? They're smaller than the boson was. We thought the boson was the small one. Now we've got to find out what these two things are. So that might have been updated recently, but um, 
no matter how small they go or how big they go, they don't find the edge where God is. Um, but God humbles himself, and you can read it, Psalm 113. And finally, verses 46 through 50, David says, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Praise the Lord. Therefore, I will give thanks to you. That's the only response. You know, knowing what God's done in our lives, knowing the more you study and realize and know what Jesus really did for us. And like the first day that you got saved, the ball of tears, um, you know, for, for knowing how much you've been forgiven, that he actually took us to himself, you know, thankfulness, gratitude. It's God's nature to save. It's God's nature to deliver, to strengthen and equip those that trust him. That's what he says, for those who put their trust in you and um, shows mercy. Jesus saved us from our sin, delivered us from eternal death and torment. He arms us with the strength to live a godly life. He equips us to do the work of ministry and reach the world with the gospel. He equips us to love one another. You having a hard time loving? You having a hard time doing any of the things that, that you know the Spirit would have us do? Pray. Seek Him for it. He will equip you and with patience. And, you know, how can we not be thankful? How can we not be grateful? Amen? Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for your word. And, um, Lord, no matter what, uh, we know that you're faithful to us. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever situation we find ourselves, we know that we can call on you, and you'll be faithful to hear us. And, Lord, it says that you come running like a father to his son that's in trouble. You flee on the clouds, and, and, uh, or flee, you f your flight, you fly on the clouds, Lord. So we just pray that you would meet us in our need. And again, we lift up those that are, that are ill and, and not feeling well. Meet their need, their father, and their suffering. And Lord, I pray you'd, uh, in, in light of the persecution, we're thankful because they persecuted you too, Lord. And so it's, it's, we're thankful that we do get persecuted. But Lord, I pray you'd be with us and that we would, we'd love our enemies and that we would be good to them and that, you know, whether they understand it or not, Lord, we just pray that you'd give us that ability to love the way that you loved. And so, Father, I pray you go with us tonight and everything and that uh, the rest of the day has for us. And we just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.